0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Gate Alliance Church. We're so glad you could join us for this week's podcast. If you have any questions or want to learn how you can be more engaged in our church, check us out online at thegatechurch.ca. Thanks for listening and enjoy this week's podcast. We're in the second week of response series in First Samuel. And I'm going to start off by playing a little game with you. Is that all right? Just a little trivia, a little test your knowledge. How many people like to read? Readers, okay. So I'm going to count on you to answer these questions. Okay, I'm going to give you uh, the first line of very popular books, and you tell me what your book it is. Okay, They're not as hard as you think. But I'll give you a very easy one to start off. Okay, there's a hint in the, in the. You don't know about me without you have read a book by the name of The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Who said that? All right. Okay, are you really? So Kim, give her five bucks. She deserves that. <laughs> You're reading that right now? Good for you, Wendy. All right. The next one is a classic novel, okay? It, again, it's easier. You should get this. Nope. <laughs> Take five dollars from her. <laughs> it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Stick Pardon me? It's no, Dickens, stick ends, but what's book? That's right. Tale of Two Cities. Of two cities. Of two, yeah. of two, yeah. If you've ever watched Cheers, you know that one because... Fraser's trying to read Norm and uh, Cliff that and get them culture. He says, the best of times are the worst of times. And they're going, hold on, which one was it? (laughs) They couldn't get it. All right, this is for kids. We don't have a lot of kids here, but if you were a kid, if you have kids, you might get this one. First of all, let me get something straight. This is a journal, not a diary. That's right. How come you knew that one, David? Because I'm a kid. All right, let's try another one for kids, okay? This will be a little more difficult, but you know the story. The first line of the book is this. Where's Papa going with the axe? That axe. No, that's a good that's a good that's a good guess. I would that's right. Who said the Keith? You got that one? That's right, Charlotte's Webb. Here's another one. This one uh, there's a hint in it. It's a classic novel, okay. They call me Ishmael. Some years ago, never mind how long precisely, having little or no money in my purse and nothing particular to interest me on shore, I thought I would sail about a little and see the watery part of the world. Moby Dick. Right, April. And you knew that one too, David? Moby That's a big book, isn't it? I haven't read that one. Moby Dick. One more. This is for the kids. This is one of my favorite books growing up. First line. The sun did not shine. It was too wet to play. So we sat in the house all that cold, cold, wet day. How do you guys know that? You guys are amazing. Kim, how did you know that? Cat in the Hat. One more, okay? Classic. All you know, read this book. There was a man named Akana. April, you win the Carl. Take her out for lunch today, will you? You'll we'll do that. Somewhere good. No McDonald's this time. <laughs> By the way, thanks for the smoked tea. Carl gave me some smoked tea this week. I had that last night. It was so good. Everybody had smoked tea before? You can buy it in Niagara-on-the-Lake. Yeah. I, he said he was going to get it for me. He did, and I sat there and just felt, this is great. I like it. I like smoked cheese and smoked meat. He goes, you might like smoked tea, and I do. Thanks, Carl and April, for giving that to me. This, this, is, this is actually the beginning of 1 Samuel, the very first line we read. There was a man named Elkanah, who lived in Ramah, in the region of Zuf, in the hill country of Ephraim. He was the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, of Ephraim. Uh, wow. This one makes you want to turn the next page, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> they don't grab your attention like some of those other ones. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. But we find here the names of people in places we've never heard of. People in places that are quite obscure to you and I today, and I have some news for you, they were also obscure to the people back in 1 Samuel's day. They had no idea who Elkanah was. Um, who is this guy? And they say he's from where? Ramah, that place. Who, what good comes out of Ramah? That's just, isn't that a way far off place in the hill country we never hear about or no one ever wants to go to? And, and you know... Who's this guy? And why, why are we talking about him coming from this place that we don't really care about? Well, what value would he have? We are in our second week of response series. We're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 1, 7. Last week, we talked about kind of an introduction, foundation, but I follow. And we saw how Samuel, uh, as a young boy, assisted Eli. He was, he was humble. He was learning. And God called him in that to become a leader. And today, we're beginning 1 Samuel chapter 1, and we 're focusing on the terms of my value. value um, you know if we, we know what it means, but just to make sure the regard that something is held to deserve the importance, worth, or usefulness of something self-value valuing ourselves is important to us. We need to feel that we matter. We need to feel that I have something. To offer that's of worth to others, and we want to know at least I do. I want to know I'm making a difference. That what I'm doing, that my value that I bring, which is different. Than your value and your value is different than mine. But what I'm bringing, I'm contributing, and it's making a difference. And so, value is important to you and I. In your notes, you'll see this quote from Harvard Business Review, very expensive magazine, but it's it's good to get. To feel valued or invaluable is almost as compelling as a need, a need as food. The more our value feels at risk, the more preoccupied we become with defending and restoring it, and the less value we're capable of creating in the world. So what what that's saying is is this that value for you and I, when we feel that it's not, we're not being valued. We don't feel others are valuing us. That is That people are trying to rob us of that. That we will suddenly become preoccupied with defending it. Because it matters. Don't take my value. But the problem is we defend it to the point where we stop creating value. I've had that happen once to me. And, I, and I, I'll be very honest. where My value was so questioned that I spent so much time trying to warrant it that it took away from creating value adding value and sometimes we get caught up in trying to say i'm worth something to the point where we're spending so much time doing that that we stop becoming effective the key thought we need to understand today is this i want you to get this when you leave here today you are valued by god that's where we need to find our value In fact, God says, and we said this, look at this verse a little while ago, for we are God's masterpiece. Think about that. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he's planned for us years ago. That's how God sees you. You are his masterpiece. There's no other Jer. There's no other Julie. There's no other Morgan. There's no other Keith. No other Sandy. 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 Brenda, there's no other <laughs> Ernie. There's no other Steve, Leona. There's no other in the world. You, you are greatly valued. You God made you not by accident. But knew. He, ple- he knew you would be here and have plans for you. To do create and do good things. Knowing and believe that value is key in being effective to your work is so important. It's so important that we understand that we are God's masterpiece, that we may not see ourselves that way, we, others may not see ourselves, ourselves that way, but when we start beginning understanding how God sees us, then we can feel value. And it's key to us being effective in life. It's key to our work. It's key to our ministry. It's key to our our relationships that we feel valued. Simply because if you, you don't add value when you don't feel you have value to add. I I love this quote in your notes. You cannot consistently perform in a matter that is inconsistent with the way you see yourself. So you cannot see yourself like, I'm not very important, I have nothing to give, and then do something credible. you, You cannot consistently perform here if it's different than how you see yourself. You are valued. And sometimes we think there are reasons in our life that make me the exception. Maybe other people are, but I feel my situation disqualifies me from being valued by God. I'm sure I'm different than everyone else. He can value others, but we talk, we take, we talk to ourselves and and we talk ourselves out of seeing value and and, and seeing ourselves as a person of worth. I want to look at those today. Sometimes our conversations we have with ourselves, and you probably can testify to this, I can't feel valued by God because I'm a nobody. That's how you feel. I'm not significant. We go back to our text. There was a man named Elkanah who lived in Ramah in the region of Zuf in the hill country of Ephraim. Ramah, the place Elkanah comes from, is not a town of great importance. We said that already. It's not important in the Old Testament narrative. There's no obvious reason for us to be interested or impressed with the fact that someone comes from Ramah. And then we read he was the son of Jeroboam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf and of Ephraim. Alcana's family connections are all relevantly insignificant. They are obscure people. People are looking at us back in this day going, who are these people? So all the information given us about Alcana, right at the beginning of this book, where he's from, who he's related to, points to nothing in regards to him being important or that his family doesn't have any social standing, no power, no significance. Alcana and his family were basically a bunch of nobodies. So we need to know, understand the context of which 1 Samuel begins with this, these nobodies. These are critical days for Israel. Chronologically speaking, 1 Samuel picks up where uh, the Judges, the book of Judges leads off. And here's the very last verse in the book of Judges. This is, this is what 1 Samuel, this is what they're being ushered into this kind of world, this kind of society. It says the very last verse of Judges. In those days Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Imagine the disorder. Everybody think I'm going to do what I think is right. So Israel, these are critical days for Israel. So why in these critical days of what sounds like anarchy, why are we being introduced to this insignificant man? You would think God would have this book beginning with some dynamic direction or, or rousing revelation with some super solution addressing Israel's needs that they find themselves in. But instead, he begins a book with this obscure, unimportant man from an unsecure, ob-secure, unimportant place. What's God's purpose? What is he trying to do? What is their importance? Well, here it is. Their importance lies in their unimportance. And that is a hint to kind of the part of the theme we're going to see developed in the course of 1 Samuel. The solutions to Israel, Israel's leadership crisis will not be found in the expected places. We do not begin this story with a prominent and powerful somebody of Israel, but rather an unknown man from an unknown place with an unknown wife named Hannah. And this unknown, Elkanah and, and his wife Hannah and this unknown land will be the people God uses to change Israel. These obscure, obscure, unimportant people. And you know what's good about that? That qualifies you and I to be used by God. The obscurity of El- El- Elkanah is a starting point for this book because God often begins to accomplish the spectacular in the world by using nobodies like us. Think about it. In our Bible reading this morning from 1 Corinthians, Peter read how God chooses the powerless. He chooses the despised. He doesn't use the ones who the world would use and think are wise and, and could, could change. We read this morning, Pete read for us this. It says, He chose what the world looks down on and despises and, think, and thinks is nothing, a nobody, in order to destroy what the world thinks is important. Do you feel insignificant? Do you feel like you're a nobody? Then you are in great company because God loves using nobodies mm-hmm. to impact the world. You're here for a reason. You are a masterpiece. The other, we have a conversation saying, "Well, I'm a nobody," and it, we also we also can say this to ourselves: I can't be valued because God, by God, because I have a past. Our enemy, the devil, will try to defeat you from being feeling value today because of the sins you committed in your past. Yep. He will try to cause you to look back in defeat instead of looking forward in the victory we can have through Jesus. I love talking about Apostle Paul because we know, we know this. Before he became the most powerful preacher, missionary, theologian that we know, he was the most powerful persecutor of the church. He was busy persecuting Christians. And if anyone would have a past that would disqualify them from being used by God, it's Paul. It would be like, and yet Paul, through the forgiveness and the grace of Christ, became this most effective minister and missionary of the good news. So we have no right to say, no, God, I have a past. You cannot use me. If he can use Paul, he can use you. See, God's forgiveness and grace is that strong. His, he told Paul once, my grace is sufficient. It's more than sufficient for you. Paul writes this, and I love his transparency. He says, I thank, Christ, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength to do his work. He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve him. Even though I used to blasphemy, the name of Christ, in my insolence, I persecuted his people. But God had mercy on me. Mercy. He's very open. He says, you know what I was like when I followed the Jewish religion, how I violently persecuted God's church. I did my best to destroy it. That's his past. Here's a fact you need to remember if you want to tell yourself, God can't use me because of my past. Every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. You know, there's a person you might think of and you look at and think, that person's a saint. They have, you know, but understand they also have a forgiven past. You might say, well, that's the most godly man, most godly woman I know, but understand this, they too are a sinner in need of grace. So don't disqualify yourself. Every saint has a past. They too have sinned and fallen short. But here's the good news. With Jesus, every sinner has a future. Don't let the devil have you looking backwards, living in defeat. Would you please allow the Lord to forgive you and give you mercy and grace and mean that and accept that and look forward in victory. No matter what you've done in your past, God can redeem you to be useful. You need to know that. No matter what you've done in your past, God can take the rest of your life, today and the rest of your life and make it a beautiful thing. He's that able. He's that capable. You can come to him and sincerely ask for him to forgive and change the direction of your life. God has done that for so many people. I think of, we think of, I think of the apostle Peter. I love Peter because I just feel like he's so much like us. Down to earth, doesn't always get it right. And think about if you and I could go back in time. I think about this so often. Think about going back in time to that point where Peter just denied Jesus three times. And, and scripture says, when he denied, when Peter realized what he'd done, he wept bitterly. And the word in the Greek doesn't mean he's just crying hard. like He was in great distress. He was greatly troubled. He just denied the one he said he would never deny. He's at the bottom of the bottom. He is just beside himself in grief and dismay for what he has done. Imagine if we could go back in time and we come along up to Peter at that time and said, Peter... And he's in the misery of his failure. We say, Peter, do you know in years to come, they're going to name cities after you? And you know, you know, years to come, people will name their children after you. In fact, there are churches named after you. And God's going to use you, Peter. What do you think Peter's reaction would have been in that moment of failure? You've got to be kidding me. How? Look what I've done. How can that be possible? I failed Jesus. I've sinned against him. I am the worst of the worst. But you and I know the rest of his story. We know how the resurrected Jesus called Peter to join him on the shore of Galilee and how three times he said, Will you, Do you love me? And Peter said, I do. I honestly do. You know my heart. And Peter was restored. And Peter was used to write such significant parts. God used him to write so many significant parts of our New Testament. He was used in the growth of the church. He had a past of failure, but God used him for the greatest things in this world. He can do it for you too. I want you to know this morning, regardless of your past and what you've done, God wants to restore you. That's how good he is. He wants to forgive you. He wants to use you because in his eyes, You are valuable. You are his masterpiece. There's no one else like you. There is hope. And you can pray to God, say, Lord, I'm so sorry for the mess I've made in my life. I look back, I see it, I understand. I'm so sorry the choices I made that were against you. I've sinned, I've disobeyed, and I've been facing the consequences of my disobedience. I feel so worthless. I feel like it's just too late for me. But this morning I'm hearing that, no, that's not the case. That there is hope. There's a real hope for me today. And I need this hope in my life. So God, would you forgive me? Would you change the direction? Help me change the direction of my life. I want it. Would you help me? I need your help. I know I can't do it alone. God, save me, heal me, direct me. God said, okay, we'll say, okay. I've done it for many others. I want to do this for you. We read in Ephesians 2.10, we are his masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do good things he planned for us long ago. God has great things for you to do. And just invite you, let's, would you come and let's discover them together? It's never too late. If you're here breathing right now, God has a plan for you to do great things. You are important. So you may say, I, I can't be valid by God I'm a nobody. Doesn't hold water. Well, I have a past. We all do. Thirdly, you may say I can't be valued by God because I'm not perfect. In Philippians 3, Paul talks about how he used to find salvation through human efforts, through religion, like a lot of people are still doing today. If I'm good enough, then I can, then I can earn my way and my, right, my standing before God will be good. And he lays out all his religious reasons why he might be, he could use to justify standing before God. He he says this in Philippians. He says, I was circumcised when I was eight years old. That's being a good Jewish boy. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever ever was one. Check. I was a member of the Pharisees. Wow. Who deemed the strict disobedience to the Jewish law. Check. I was so zealous that that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Check. That's how Paul used to think. And then he says, all this human effort didn't work. It was not enough. These things did not add value. And he said, he went on to say, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done in me. Paul is saying, I used to find my value in religious standing among people. I found it in my own human effort. I valued these things because I felt they made me perfect and righteous before God, but now I know. He says, this is his testimony. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ, my Lord. And then Paul begins to outline in, in Philippians chapter 3. Um, the goals in his life now. What he values now. He says, I want to become one with Jesus. Verse 9. I want to be, I, where, I, where I counted on my own righteousness, now I know i become righteousness through the faith in Christ. I try to be perfect on my own. It didn't work. I'm now looking for it in Christ. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want, I want to know that. I want to suffer with Jesus. That's wow. That's mature. And then Paul concludes this. He says, even though I say these things, I don't mean that I've already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed for me. The perfection we seek is not our own, but the perfection we seek is the perfection of Christ Jesus living in us. Like Paul, we have not reached it yet. We will not until we go to heaven. But like Paul, we have this ability today to press forward and reach out for Christ who has so wondrously is reaching out for us. And we can press on and grow and become all the days of our life. And I wonder if that's what you're doing. If you're truly seeking Him. Are you truly allowing Him to be Lord of your life? Are you like Paul saying, maybe I relied on my own too much and it's not working. I need to rely on Christ Not just in part, but in whole. And finally, I can't be valued by God because, well, I have an affliction. We read the very first verse of uh, 1 Samuel. Let's read the next uh, few verses. It says, Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and Uh, Penaniah. uh, Penaniah, or however you want to say it, had children, but Hannah did not. Each year, Elkanah would travel to Shiloh to worship and sacrifice the Lord's armies, Lord of Heaven's armies, at the tabernacle. The priests of the Lord at the time were the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas. On the days Elkanah presented his sacrifice, he would give portions of meat to Penna, uh, Peninnah and each to, to her children. And though he loved Hannah, he would give her only one choice portion because the Lord had given her no children. So Peninnah would taunt Hannah and make fun of her because the Lord kept her from having children. Year after year, hear that. Year after year, it was the same. Peninnah would taunt Hannah as they went to the tabernacle. Each time, Hannah would be reduced to tears and would not even eat. But year after year, Hannah, wept because this other wife of Elkanah taunted her because she could not have kids. She had an affliction. She had a problem. She had a predicament. She did not feel valued because of this. Hannah was probably Elkanah's first wife. He quickly. We quickly learned how the couple suffered the all-too-common sadness that couples still face today who want to have children but can't. And Hannah would have felt the brunt of this pain because for a woman to be barren was a shameful, humiliating status, stigma. That and back then. Let alone the personal suffering she would have to endure. Not being able to have children would have caused her to feel less value as a wife, as a woman, especially in these Old Testament days. So Hannah's predicament got worse when Elkanah took, the sec- took a second wife. And that was allowed back then because if she could not give children, then he could take another wife to give him children. And the new wife, uh, Penna- Peninnah, bore a number of children. Hannah continued to have none. And this would have chipped away at Hannah's sense of value. But it gets worse. For we read that Peninnah, this other wife, would taunt Hannah. Would make fun of her because the Lord kept her from having children. And she would weep in distress because of this affliction. And she was mocked because of it. Uh, the Danish philosopher Kierkegaard told a story of thieves who broke into a jewelry store and didn't steal anything. They simply rearranged the price tags. And the next morning, the expensive jewelry was sold as junk. And the junk jewelry was sold as expensive. And the point he was trying to make is we live in a world where someone has rearranged the price tags. That is, we live in a broken world and we value the wrong things. And our culture, people are valued for how they look, for what they can do or what they have, but really for who they are. So what is your affliction? What do you bear by what you're allowing others to define your value by? I would feel valuable except for this. Consider, I want you to consider the people of the Bible and hear the afflictions that they had to deal with and in spite of it were used greatly by God. Maybe you can identify with one or more of them. So Abraham was really, really old. was 90 when God began to get a hold of him. Jacob was a chronic liar who ran away from tough situations. Leah was unattractive and God used her. Joseph was abused time and time again. Gideon was the poorest in his family. Rehab was the prostitute. And yet she shows up in Hebrews 11, God's hall of fame for faithful people in the Bible. I was thinking of Deb this morning. Just just, so thankful for her, how God turned her life around and used her. Joseph, Jonah was fearful and reluctant. Elijah was suicidal. Naomi was an elderly widow. Jeremiah suffered with chronic depression. David had an affair and then his mistress, had his mistress' husband killed. I think that would disqualify him being used by God for great things. But the same David wrote the book of Psalms and is described as a man after God's own heart. That's how powerful God's grace is when we seek it and, and accept it. Peter was impulsive and had anger management problems. Martha worried a lot, but God used her. The Samaritan woman at the well had several failed marriages, and yet God valued her and used her to reach her village. Thomas, he had doubts. Mm -hmm. Timothy was timid. Moses, David, and Paul were all guilty of murder in their past. So I want you to tell me again why God can't use you in your affliction. Let me close with this. We did a Hearing God workshop here recently. We'll do them again. And there's this one exercise we do in Hearing God. is where we ask God this question, what do you like about me? And how do you see me? And we have to spend time listening and write down, God, how do you see me? How do you, what do you like about me? And you know, every time we're hesitant, we struggle with asking this question, God, what do you like about me? What do you see when you see me? And I think we struggle because, like much of the rest of the world, we're prepared to hear God talk about what a great disappointment we've been. And what's wrong with me? and where I need to improve. But God wants to first speak value into your life. His son just demonstrates that. While we were still sinners, while we scorned God, turned our back on God, he came and died for us, it says in the Bible. It says that Jesus became sin for us. Do you remember, I remember in grade two, singing the song, we used to sing Sunday school songs in grade two, still back when I was that, that young. Uh, um, God sees a little sparrow fall God sees a little sparrow fall and in the Bible God says this what is the price of two sparrows one copper coin they're not very significant but not a single insignificant sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it and the very hairs on your head are all numbered so don't be afraid you are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows and I wonder if you believe him It it is my um, practice in the morning to come and pray over the chairs where you're sitting. And I was walking through this morning praying, saying, God, just help to get this message across that that we are valued by you and and that we need to accept that value. And God stopped me in one place in the sanctuary today and said this to me. (coughs) He said, the reason that there's some who are not feeling valued is because they're not living in accordance to how I see them. That's what he said, and I heard that. They're not accepting their own evaluation. I'm sorry, they are accepting their own evaluation or accepting what others say, think, but they need to accept how I see them and live in accordance to that. Don't live to what you think and what others think. You, you, you live to what God, how God sees you. We need to adhere to that. We need to rise to that. You are his masterpiece. And he says, I value this. Don't cheapen it. Don't cheapen it. Listen to me. Look to me. Understand how I see you and love you. And live accordingly. You are valued. Let's pray together. Father, we look at this beginning of the book. We see Elkanah, insignificant. We see Hannah, who had afflictions. We know that you use so many imperfect people with a past in the Bible. I don't know how God would ever come to you and say, I can't be used by you. I pray, God, that we would not allow the enemy to convince us that we're the exception when you say, I love you. You are my child. I am your father. I want to give you hope. I want to give you plans. I want, God, you are my masterpiece. Lord, if we ignore that, what are we saying? And so God, maybe today we need to surrender before you and humble ourselves before you and say, God, I'm ready to receive this truth that I am great in your eyes, I am valued in your eyes. That you did not die in the cross in vain. You died for something that you valued so much and that is me and you. That's us. Lord, help us to live according to that. Find us to be faithful in seeing ourselves as you see us, God, so we can accomplish much in your kingdom work. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. We make these messages available to give you a window into our church, but also an open gate for you to join in with our community. Our Sunday service is at 10 a.m., and we look forward to seeing you soon and know that there is a place for you at the gate. Please remember to visit thegatechurch.ca for more information about our church.